Thank you, Emery the Stoic. This is Jesus, a forerunner for us, part two. And it's the word prodromos, P-R-O-D-R-O-M-O-S, prodromos, small p there, prodromos. And I was told by a commentator, or maybe even one of the Bible dictionaries, can't remember which one, they said this is the only place where it's ever used in the Bible, it's never used anywhere else in the Bible, and I found out that it was used elsewhere in the Bible, not the English word, but the Greek word prosdramas, and I found some interesting connections to it here, so I'm going to give them to you. A forerunner here is the same person as a son, or as he's called the son in Hebrews 1.2, and in Hebrews 4.14. The word for forerunner, as we've seen, is prodromos. It is found in Isaiah 28.4 in the Septuagint, in a verse where it is obviously close to a phrase, or it's curiously close to a phrase, rather, that comes into the New Testament, namely, the hope of glory. Prodromos, close, close proximity to the hope of glory. Just can't get away from hope. The hope of glory here is a phrase found right in that same passage. T-E-S, the, doxe, elpidos, which we know as an inflection of elpis. Elpidos, tes, elpidos, tes, again, of the glory. D O X. E S doxes tes elpidos tes doxes. Find that word. Find that phrase next to or near prodromas in Isaiah twenty-eight four. But you also find the phrase tes elpidos do, tes doxes in Colossians one twenty-seven, where it says Christ in us is the hope of glory. So obviously these scriptures testify of Jesus Christ, even though we don't see that on the surface. So according to Colossians 1.27, Christ in us is the hope of glory. The prophecy in Isaiah 28.4 speaks of the flower that has, quote, fallen from its hope of glory. The flower that has fallen from its hope of glory. But we're not left there with the fallen flower that has fallen from its hope of glory because in the prophecy that becomes, quote, as an early fig. And that's where the word prodromas comes. Os prodromas suku, S-U-K-O-U. Os, os prodromas suku, you see it in print. That flower which has fallen from its hope of glory becomes, through a miraculous transformation, an early fig. That's where the word prodromas comes in. The, it's kind of a pioneer fig or a pioneer or harbinger fig, an early fig that is desirable to eat. In Isaiah 28, 5, following upon that verse, God speaks in this prophet, proto-Isaiah, the first Isaiah, 
of, quote, the day when the Lord of the armies will be the garland or the crown. Stephanos, which brings to memory Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus crowned, the verbal form of Stephanos, with what? Glory and honor. So the prophecy in 28.4 speaks of the flower that has fallen from its hope of glory, but it becomes as an early fig that's desirable to eat. In Isaiah 28.5, God speaks in this proto-Isaiah of the day when the Lord of the armies will be the garland or crown of hope, which is woven of glory to the remnant of his people. See all these words crowding in, glory and hope and glorious hope and Prodromos, and Jesus is a prodromos for us. He's crowned with a garland of glory. He is the depiction of our destiny. One can't help but see Jesus in this prophecy. How many words, how many verses, how many books of the Bible do we read and miss it's reference to Jesus Christ when Jesus said, these are they which testify of me. Why wouldn't Isaiah 28.4 and 28.5 testify of him? And so Prodromos is found elsewhere in the Bible. In it, one can't help but see Jesus in the prophecy for he in us, he in us is the hope of glory. And therefore, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. The unfading garland of glory, moreover, in Isaiah 28, 5, also evokes the unfading crown of glory that the chief shepherd, Archipoimenos, will award to faithful pastors, faithful elders, faithful presbyteroi, in the appearance of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 5, 4. Archipoimenos, or Archipoimenos, chief shepherd. Just like there's an Archierus, chief or arch priest, there is an arch shepherd, arch pastor. He will award the unfading crown of glory to faithful pastors. 1 Peter's arch shepherd and here's another connection between 1 Peter and Hebrews, incidentally. 1 Peter's arch-shepherd is the same as Hebrews' great arch-priest. And the great arch-priest in Hebrews is also called, in Hebrews, the great shepherd of the sheep. Ton poimena, ton probaton, ton megan. Literally, it would be the shepherd of the sheep, the great one. Ton poimena, ton probaton, ton megan. Hebrews 13.20 Whom the God of peace has led up from the realm of the dead because of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13.20 That blood being the price of freedom for the prisoners held in a waterless cistern as Zechariah 9.11 says. You say, how do you mix up all those verses? Well, I'm using the rabbinical device called Gezerah Shawa. We too can use it to great effect. 
Prodromos also denotes someone who goes on ahead to prepare the way for others. It can be descriptive of a scout or a spy. Lunita, in its installment 36.9, says, quote, one who undergoes an experience in advance of others. This, too, is significant, this meaning, because it suggests that Jesus was glorified and exalted after crucifixion, death, and resurrection. When he died, all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Consequently, all were crucified in him. The cosmos was crucified, and so the cosmos and all of humanity will be raised and exalted in him in the new heavens and the new earth. The restoration of all things, the transfiguration of the universe, will be the product and result of, as we saw in last increment, instauration of being crucified with Jesus, of having died with Jesus, of having been buried with him and raised with him, ascended with him and exalted with him. Lunita, that's L-O-U-W and N-I-D-A, goes on to say this, and I'm quoting from the Lunita Lexicon. The implication of prodromos in this type of context is that of a precursor. That is to say, one who goes on ahead in order to show the way or to pioneer on behalf of someone else. Hebrews 6.20, they say, may therefore be rendered as Jesus went on ahead of us in there for our benefit. Once again, we have a philanthropic and benevolent Christology here for our benefit. We, once again, we have the doctrine of divine promedi in illustration in Jesus as prodromos. Now, again, this is the development of the doctrine of divine promedi, and this is also a benevolent Christology presented by Hebrews and really the whole New Testament. Divine primity simply refers to God for us. God is for us in such a way that, quote, he didn't spare his very own son, but freely handed him over for us all. Romans 8.32. Moreover, Christ, the one who died, even more, who was raised up and as at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf, Romans 8.34. So Jesus, as a forerunner for us, is the ongoing expression of divine promeity, of God showing himself to be for us, or for our sake, or for us all. Now, Gareth Lee Cockerell observed something that had escaped my notice and I noticed it just before I was ready to finally put the cap on this doctrine and it escaped my notice in 620 he wrote this quote by stating that Jesus entered into God's presence for our sake 
The author of Hebrews has brilliantly returned to the definition of Jesus as a priest. For every priest is appointed, quote, for the sake of humans in matters pertaining to God. That reaches all the way back to 5.1 of Hebrews. Now, what we might observe from this statement and what I observe about this statement in Hebrews 5.1 is what I call its extreme generalities or its extreme generalizations, extreme generality. By that I mean that it says every priest taken from human beings, We're talking about Hebrews 5.1 now, it says every priest taken from human beings. And that's, and you'll see it in print, ex anthropon. Ex anthropon. Lam banomenos. Ex anthropon. From human beings or from humanity. Every priest taken from human beings, from the pool of human beings, meaning all of humanity. He's taken from humanity. Is appointed in things pertaining to God in behalf of human beings. Huper anthropon. You'll see that also in print, and I hope it'll, it'll be helpful. That's where the generalization comes in, the extreme generality. In Hebrews 5.1, he doesn't say every Levitical priest taken from a succession of males from Aaron through Levi in things pertaining to God in behalf of the people of Israel. That's not what he says. Again, in Hebrews 5.1, the writer doesn't say that every Levitical priest is taken from a specific succession of males, <coughs> particularly from Aaron through Levi, in things pertaining to God in behalf of the people of Israel. No, he gets very general. Instead, anticipating Jesus as the great archpriest, the author speaks of being, quote, taken from among human beings in an extreme generalization in order to act in behalf of human beings in general. That's another extreme generalization. Observe the double generalization here. It's extreme. The pastor speaks twice of the totality called human beings. Anthropon in plural. That means the entirety of humanity. Indeed, Jesus was taken from human beings. Having been incarnated as a human being, none but the man Christ Jesus was chosen from the pool of the entirety of humanity in things pertaining to God, his Father, in behalf of human beings in general. We may infer, therefore, that Jesus acted with regard to God in behalf of all human beings. But would our inference be a true one? I always like to ask that question. Would our inference be a true one? Now, what am I saying here? Hebrews 5.1 is talking about a generalization. Every priest. 
It's not talking specifically about the Levitical priest, because then it would say every Levitical priest is appointed from among a small pool of humanity, specifically the line of Aaron through Levi in a succession. Every Levitical priest is therefore not a generalization, but a very specific line of humanity from a very specific line of males in a specific succession. They are selected to perform duties pertaining to God for, in the case of Levitical priests, not for all of humanity, but for that part of humanity called Israel and the nation of Israel, the people of Israel in general. It doesn't say that in Hebrews 5.1. There is a generalization there. Every priest taken from humankind in things pertaining to God in behalf of humankind. Jesus wasn't a specific priest, Levitical priest, taken from the succession of Levi. He was a priest taken from humanity in general to offer a service on behalf of humanity in toto, a service that he performed pertaining to God, which we know, of course, is to offer one-time sacrifice. That's coming up, though. We're anticipating. So would our infants be true that Jesus acted with regard to God in behalf of all human beings? We could even ask, did Jesus act salvifically, savingly, with regard to God on behalf of all human beings. We, I've inferred that already, but would our inference be true? Well, as we've learned from our study of inferences a few increments back, let's consider Titus 2.11. That's what comes to mind first, for a start. There the scripture says, literally, for the grace of God showed itself. There was an event when God's grace showed itself, stopped being hidden in the shadows and came out and showed itself. Colon, the salvation of all human beings. It doesn't say bringing salvation to all human beings. It doesn't say that. That's what people use to fill in the ellipsis there. But it's better just to leave the ellipsis alone and simply translate it the way it is in the Greek text. For the grace of God showed itself the salvation of all human beings. And the word there is soterias pasin anthropois. The salvation of all human beings. What is the grace of God that showed itself? The salvation of all human beings. You want to define the grace of God. Define the grace of God. Okay, I will. The salvation of all human beings. Titus 2.11. So can we infer that Jesus acted with regard to God on behalf of all human beings savingly? Would our inference be true? According to Titus 2.11, it would be. Moreover, in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. Humanity there is a generalization. It's not some human beings. It's all human beings. That's humanity as a whole. Anthropon, again, anthropon, 
Again, you'll see it in print, in Greek, and in English transliteration. There's one mediator who stands alone between God and all of humanity, who happens to be God and man in one person. There's one God. Yes, that one God subsists in three persons. One God and one mediator between God and humanity. And now we're going to find out that God has a very special stra stressor on the intermediary among three things. As Aristotle puts an emphasis on the middle term or the golden mean, as Aristotle did, so did Aquinas in their reasoning. There was always an emphasis on an intermediary who sometimes elevated the conclusion of an argument to a higher place altogether and sometimes reconciled two things that appeared to be opposites. Coming up to that though. And there's actually a connection between that and vertical causation which is a theory that is ready to supplant Einstein's theory and the theory of quantum mechanics etc etc but let's get to this now 1st Timothy 2 5 says "For there is one God and one mediator the man Christ Jesus between God and man he is the mediator between the one God and all human beings he mediates what what does he mediate God's salvation God is salvation and the God of our salvation Jesus is the mediator of God who is salvation to all of humanity who needs to be saved and has been. Moreover, in 1 Timothy 2, 6, the man Christ Jesus, taken from human beings, quote, gave himself as a ransom for all, meaning all human beings. In the language of the pastor in Hebrews, it says this, but now once at the junction of the ages, he has appeared for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. There he is, appearing for the sacrifice of himself. God's grace appeared, the salvation of all. Christ appeared at the junction of the ages to remove sin, which resulted in the salvation of all. So again, with the generalizations. Again with the generalizations. It doesn't say the sins of the people of Israel that he put away in Hebrews 9.26. In fact, if we went back all the way back to John's Gospel in 129, we'd say he took away as the Lamb of God the sin of the world. If we went back to 1 John 2.12, we'd say that he's the propitiation or the expiation or the putting away of uh, not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. So it doesn't say the sins of the people of Israel in Hebrews 9.26. Nor does it say the sins of ignorance committed by the people of Israel, an even more specialized category of sins. Nor does it even say the sins of ignorance committed by the people of Israel over the course of a single year between Yom Kippur's. It says Christ put away sins, period, by the offering of himself once in the climactic junction of the ages. We're pretty close to being able to say not only that our inference that Jesus acted with regard to God in behalf of all human beings is true, but that he acted with supremely effective salvific impact in behalf of all human beings. 
We're talking about the universally saving significance of the priest taken from men to act in things pertaining to God in behalf of all human beings. And we're saying that he did so when he offered himself to put away sins. Sins is an extreme general generality. All sins of all human beings of all time. In fact, the sin that invaded the cosmos through the one-time failure of Adam and transgression of Adam. Now, let's take this a step further. We're also suggesting by this that the intercessory ministry that's ongoing even now that Jesus performs in the presence of God is also for all of humanity. And this is perfectly in accord with Romans 5.18. So then, as through one sin came condemnation to all people, so through the righteous act of the one came the justification of life to all. And in Romans 8.31 and 32, what can we say against these things? You see, there's an end of all contradiction here in Hebrews 6.16. Nothing at all. We can't say anything at all in contradiction. If God is for us, there's divine promity, who can be effectively against us? No one at all. Romans 8.32, since indeed God did not spare his very own son as he spared Isaac, Abraham's son, but freely handed him over for us all, how will he not freely grant us all things with him, who is not only the son, but the heir of all things? Romans 8.32 coupled with Hebrews 1.2. And still again in Romans, speaking of his ministry of intercession and advocacy in Romans 8.34, who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died, and beyond even that, who is raised up, who is now and forever at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf? There's only one human being with the authority to condemn, and he doesn't. He justifies and he advocates. So Paul's opponent by this time has pretty much shut his mouth except when he gets into the tortured tenses of Romans 9 and misinterprets them as Calvin and others do. Then Paul has to shut him down again. God freely handed his son over to be the sacrifice to remove the sins of of us all. That didn't mean that Jesus acted involuntarily. Oh no, he handed himself over too. So his advocacy in our behalf must be his advocacy for us all. Let me put this to you again. Be reasonable. God freely handed his son over to be the sacrifice to remove the sins of us all. So his advocacy in our behalf must be his advocacy for us all. But I'm calling this increment Jesus a forerunner for us part two 
Padramas too. We're dealing with Padramas. Liddell Scott, in their installment 35128, take the military angle and give the sense of Pradramas as, quote, the advanced guard. We see Jesus as the advanced guard, therefore. The plural of Pradramas, which is Pradromoi, was evidently used for a corps called the guides in the Macedonian army, evidently Alexander the Great's army. He had a group of advanced guard called the guides. Thayer, Joseph Thayer, gives the meaning of, quote, one who is sent before to take observations or act as a spy, a scout, a light-armed soldier. You see the military connections here. In Hebrews 12, we see Jesus as an athlete. Here we see him as a soldier, a spy, a scout. We would refer to this as recon today. It has something to do with the recon units in the military. And this is the use of the word by the historian of the Peloponnesian Wars named Thucydides. Stephen Pressfield did an ingenious book called Tides of War based on Thucydides' study of the 27-year Peloponnesian Wars. And so in Thucydides, he uses the word for prodromos as one who goes before in the military sense as scout or spy or recon. And this is the use of the word by the historian also Polybius, a historian of the Roman military, as well as Herodotus and Plutarch and other writers who are extant, according to Thayer. Luke Timothy Johnson, another excellent commentator on Hebrews, observed this, quote, Herodotus uses it, prodromos, for the advance units of an army. Now, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says this, and this is something I don't usually quote all these things. I might look at them all for many different words, but this, re, this deserves some repetition or some consideration. In the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia under Padramas, they say this, the word signifies one who comes in advance to a place where the rest are to follow, but then the ISBE helpfully adds this, and listen please very carefully to this, or consider this carefully in your written part of the message, the written portion. The Old Testament Levitical economy knew nothing of such a thing, of such. The high priest was a representative, not a forerunner. So there's a distinction already between Jesus, the great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek, as a forerunner, and the Levitical priests, or, and even their archpriests, were not a forerunners. Where he led, namely, into the Holy of Holies, the people could not follow. And so he was not the pioneer of the people, the Old Testament priests. Christ is the pioneer of the people. Christ goes nowhere but where his people may follow. He is the file leader. And then it says to compare Hebrews 12 to the author of faith. So, again, take this into consideration. The high priest of the Old Testament, or the Levitical priest, was not, was, he was a representative, but not a forerunner. And he 
went into the Holy of Holies, but the people couldn't follow. Jesus is a forerunner for us as well as a representative. His going into the Holy of Holies as a forerunner means we are supposed to follow. That's significant. And this is significant to our Hebrew study because it calls attention to the contrast between the arch priesthood of Jesus and that of the Aaronic order of priests. Jesus goes not where we are not permitted to go. Now, what did Jesus say to in his argument with the opponents in John 8? He says, where I'm going, you can't go. Meaning, he's talking to people who depended on the Levitical priesthood. They can't, they can't go, because where he's going is the Holy of Holies. He also said to his disciples, where I'm going, you can't go yet. You can't go yet. But where I am going, you're going to go. You will go. And then he said, more significant, most significant of all, Jesus doesn't go where we aren't permitted to go. In fact, he goes where we will go because he goes to prepare a place for us. And he said it himself in John 14, 3. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You see, he's a forerunner for us. He's not just our representative up there in heaven for us. He went somewhere where we're going to go so that where he is, we will be. And in one sense, we are already where he is because it says we have been raised up together with him and seated together with him in heavenly places. We are where he is. Now, Jesus completed his offering as an archpriest. And he continues his vocation as archpriest by making intercession for us to save us to the uttermost. That'll be coming up. We're anticipating Hebrews 7, 16 and 25 there. Now, as we round out this increment, increment 175. With the last clause of Hebrews 6.20, an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, we have an inclusio with Hebrews 5.10. Consequently, Hebrews 5.11 to 6.20, which I said when we kicked this off in that passage, in that verse, 5.11, we have a distinctive unit within this homily. So we're now at last ready to lift off into the central expositional section of Hebrews, which will expand on the monumental implications and inferences of Jesus, our great archpriest, according to the type that is presented to us in Scripture in the historical personage of Melchizedek. It should be noted that the archpriest customarily appeared to the people a second time. In other words, after performing his task of making atonement for his own sins and for the sins of the people, he goes into the holiest place of all. The people still wait around. 
Then he appears again to them with the good news that he didn't die in there, but he lived and God accepted the sacrifice so he comes out. They're very happy because God accepted the atoning sacrifice for them for another year till the next Yom Kippur. So the priest appeared a second time. Now, if you're really astute and attentive, and maybe you've read Hebrews a few times before, you know I'm referring to Hebrews 9.28. He who came once to put away the sins of the world will appear a second time. And in that second appearance, the last judgment will consist not of God saying, damn some of you, but of God saying, yep, I accepted the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for the whole of humankind and for all of creation. Look, I'm making everything new. So again, it should be noted that the archpriest customarily appeared to the people a second time after performing his task of making atonement for his own sins and for the sins of the people. Jesus, the archpriest, appears a second time not only to Israel, remember our generalizations again with the generalizations, but to all of humanity for all of time, bringing salvation, which is the fruit of his act of atonement, which he completed when he entered behind the second curtain of heaven's holy of holies. He didn't go in there to make atonement for his own sins. He had no sins. He didn't go in there to make atonement for the sins of ignorance of the people of Israel. He didn't go in there just to make atonement for the sins of Israel, period. He went in there after making atonement on the cross for the sins of the whole world. I call that a great salvation. I think it'd be really, really dumb to ignore it all while we're on this earth, to neglect it, to not keep taking in the word where we're reminded of it. I think that'd be really kind of unintelligent, inattentive, unreasonable, maybe even irresponsible and ultimately unloving of us to do that. So we're now at last ready, I said, and I'll say it again, to lift off into the central expositional section of this homily. Jesus, the archpriest, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to bring salvation, not only to Israel, but to all of humanity for all of time. This great salvation that he brings can be anticipated by us. Don't let anyone ever take that away from you. It can be anticipated by us with great joy. We're oscillating between joy and hope and hope and joy. With a joy that overflows by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's an unspeakable glory-filled joy in 1 Peter 1.8. It's the joy of salvation in Psalm 51, LXX50, I guess. The joy of Jesus, our salvation. This brings us back in closing to Jesus' present service as our great archpriest in the order of Melchizedek. And this present service is a reality that the pastor elucidates in the upcoming key expositional section of the homily. Now, for those of you who may be impatient to move on, and I know there's one or two of you, 
Here's our preliminary working translation of Hebrews 7, 1 to 3. Surprise! Hebrews 7, 1 to 3, my preliminary working translation from the Greek text goes like this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to God most high, who met with Abraham and blessed him as he returned from the defeat of the kings. That's the desert shakes. Two, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Abraham's back. Without father, verse 3, without mother, this Melchizedek, neither having beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest perpetually. Because there's no record of his beginning and no record of his death or his end and no record of his genealogy, he was made to be a prefiguration of Christ who, as God, had no beginning. As man has a beginning but no end. As priest is a priest perpetually. But in another sense, he is an eternal priest because he's the eternal God who's also a human priest. So here's nine things about Melchizedek. We'll hit the ground running here. For this Melchizedek, one, king of Salem. That means king of peace. Two, he's priest to God most high. El Elyon, he's called. Three, Melchizedek met with Abraham and blessed him as a return from the defeat of the kings after a military victory in which Abraham rescued hostages from Sodom including the mayor of Sodom, including Lot, his nephew, and others. Four, Melchizedek is he to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything, that is, of the spoils of military victory. Fifth, Melchizedek is called without father. What's that mean? Second, or sixth, he's called without mother. What's that mean? Seventh, Melchizedek neither has beginning of days nor end of life. And here we'll entertain the difference between eternity and aveternity as we find it in Aquinas and in Aristotle and in vertical causation by Wolfgang Smith, etc. But verse the eighth thing, Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. What's that mean? He was made to prefigure the Son of God. And ninth, he remains a priest perpetually. That is Christ in as an antitype of Melchizedek remains a priest perpetually. So here's a question for intelligence and we'll close off increment 175. Here's a question for intelligence that is a question that seeks an answer. Who is this Melchizedek? And there are four possibilities. I'm sure there are others, but here's the four main ones I've seen in the commentaries I've studied. A, is he a divine personage? That is, the pre-incarnate Christ. B, is he an angel? Some thought he was. C, is he an historic figure and a real human being? And D, is he a prefiguration of the Son of God? 
Is he one or more of these? This is a question for intelligence that we'll seek to answer among many other things in Hebrews 7. Father, we're very grateful for your gift to us of insight after insight after insight. I pray that Hebrews and our study of We See Jesus, Hebrews 2020, will continue to be just that, a conveyance of insight after insight so that more and more of us can come to the illative sense, to the certitude of a transcendent reality, that transcendent reality being Jesus. And may we see him with the 2020 vision of our hearts, with our mind's eye, and with our regenerate imagination. And Father, we are so grateful for all that you've done for us and all that you continue to do for us. And we see all that in Jesus. We pray this in his name while we thank you once again for your constant provision for us, even through these troubled times, even through these unstable historical trends of our time. You've provided, you continue to provide, and we pray that you'll be especially draw near, especially to those who are particularly hurting, to those who are particularly suffering, to those who have experienced loss or who are experiencing illness or a loss of health, relationship problems, who are enduring perhaps the ostracism and cancellation of a vicious culture. We pray that you'll be and draw near to them. That Father, you and your son Jesus Christ himself will draw near to those that are experiencing such things with great consolation and with great, great comfort. And thanks to you, Father, who has given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace. We pray that you'll continue to let hope and joy oscillate in all the souls of all the people who hear these messages. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.